you've got your Bibles, I'll invite you to open to John chapter 15. We're still going through the Gospel of John, and we've got a few more weeks where we're looking at this, it's called the upper room section. It's chapters 14 through 17, where Jesus is spending the the last night uh, before his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. He's spending it with his disciples, and rather than just going line by line, we're looking at various themes throughout the Gospel of John, uh, throughout the upper room. Today, we're looking at the theme of the world, and I'm going to invite Natalie to come and do our scripture reading. So let's turn our attention to God's Word now. This is God's Word from John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as, it, as, a, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now that they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Amen. Friends, will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity to look at a, 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 a very dense subject, a very dense topic of the world. And God, I'm asking for myself. God, I pray that you would guard my lips and you would help me to only teach those things that are truthful and helpful, that would build us up in our relationship with Jesus. And God, I pray for each person who is in here. God, I pray you would give us... Uh, You'd give us sharp minds to think. You'd give us a a heart and a passion to feel. And you'd give us hands that are equipped for action so that we might be for the world what you want us to be for the world. We pray this all in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. You know, honest to goodness, when when we kind of planned out the John series and done a few little adjustments here and there, but months ago said, oh, I'm going I'm to teach on the world. This is a big theme. I did not realize that we would have a team going to Mexico on the same Sunday that Irene would be here from Uganda and I'm teaching about the world. I was just as surprised as you about two weeks ago when I realized all this was kind of coming together. But I think that's very cool. Uh, I don't know if you do, but I, I just see providence in that, that, that God knew. And what, a, what an awesome opportunity to talk about this theme. I'll tell you, the other thing I did not realize is that, quote, the world is a massive subject in the gospel of John. Like this is the stuff of like PhD dissertations and a century and a half of Christian thought and writing and debate. The word cosmos, which is the word for world, is the second most used word in the Gospel of John. It appears 78 times. 38 times of them are in this upper room section. So almost half. Just out of curiosity, if anybody's been paying attention, does anybody know what the most used word in the Gospel of John? I don't mean like a, an, and the. I mean like theological word, love. Good guess, good guess. What? 
Word, Father. Huh? Believe. Who said believe? Josh, you looked at my, you were in the first service. Somebody find him. Okay, so it's believe, right? John said, the the reason I'm writing this gospel is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you'd have life in his name. So the whole purpose is that we would believe 98 times. But cosmos, world, 78 times in the gospel of John. And we run up against a problem right out of the gate because when John uses the phrase, the world or the word cosmos, he does not always use it in the same way. We have to ask the question, what does the world mean? By the way, if you like Josh are an overachiever and you want to go to the website, I have attached a PDF printout of all 78 instances of cosmos in John's gospel. You can print it out. You can place one copy on the desk of every single one of your coworkers and they will love you forever. Okay. The world, what does that even mean? We talk about the world. We use it in different ways. You know, we're traveling the world or, uh, you know, they're a very worldly sort of a person. We we use it in our culture in different ways. The same is true in, in the biblical time when John is writing this. He uses the phrase the world different ways. And this is really important because it's going to help us to avoid some misunderstanding. So I'll summarize it this way. Planet, people, powers. I'm not a Baptist preacher, but that's a three-point alliteration for you. You're welcome, okay? The planet. When, when, When John writes of the world, sometimes he's just writing about the physical creation. For example, in, in John, uh, Chapter 17, Jesus prays and he says, Father, would you glorify me with the glory that I had before the world was created? So there you can see, oh, he's talking about the physical creation, not just planet Earth, but all of the planets and the stars and the sun and the moon and everything that is the the universe. Sometimes though, most commonly, John uses the phrase cosmos, the word cosmos to refer to mankind. And sometimes that's all mankind. Like in John 1, where it talks about the light was coming into the world to bring light to mankind. I also think that's in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He's referring to all mankind. There's other times though, where when John uses the word cosmos, he's only meaning those who are redeemed, those who have been saved, those who have been uh, rescued out of their sin by placing their faith, by believing in Jesus. So for example, in John chapter one, John the baptizer, it's different John, not our author John, John the baptizer sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we know that those who have their sins taken away are those who are redeemed, those who are saved, those who have trusted in Jesus. So there, he's using it to refer to a subset of humanity, those who have trusted in Jesus. But then there's also times, like in our scripture reading today and other passages, where Jesus uses the word cosmos, or John the author uses the word cosmos, to refer to those who are not redeemed. You just heard that in our scripture reading, or, or if you were here a couple of weeks ago in John 14, where he says, you know, the world can't receive the Holy Spirit. You can receive the Holy Spirit because you believe, but the world can't receive the Holy Spirit. So is, are you guys tracking with me? Like, is this clear as day, right? Like the, the planet, sometimes all mankind, sometimes the saved, sometimes the unsaved. Oh wait, there's more. Because sometimes John uses the word cosmos to refer to powers or politics or just the way the world is. You guys know what I'm talking about? Well, that's, 
That's just how things are. Huh? That's just, that's the way of the world. Like in, in John chapter 12, when Jesus says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Or in John 18, when Jesus is being interviewed, interrogated by Pilate, he says, now my kingdom is not of this world. We do things a little bit different where I'm from. So it's referring to the politics, the practices, the beliefs, the powers, the structures. You know, you ever, you ever just feel like, man, I just, I can't fight the world. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I want to change the world. I want to do things differently, but it's just the world kind of does what it's going to do. By the way, you know, I mentioned like, this is the stuff of PhD dissertations and writings and books. I started, I started cracking open books. Many of these I have copies of and many of these authors I've read a little bit before, but I went down such a deep rabbit hole this week. Uh, I started out by just looking at a guy named Abraham Kuyper. You ever heard of Abraham Kuyper? Yeah, where's the, yeah, the Dutch are happy about this part. Okay, so Abraham Kuyper uh, was a, a Dutch called a neo-Calvinist. He was very influential in the Netherlands in the latter part of the 19th century, as you can see. And he has this kind of famous quote where he says, you know, that there is not one square inch in the whole of creation over which Jesus does not cry out, mine, everything belongs to Jesus. Everything is his. And so therefore Abraham Kuyper said, we need to go engage in the world and we need to press forward and we need to push in and we need to, and you know what he did? He ran for parliament, one. He ran for prime, he was the prime minister of the Netherlands for crying out loud. That's pretty active and engaged and involved, right? So that's kind of his direction. Now he has been really influential in Western American evangelicalism. Anytime you sing some song about we're going to go change the world or you, you, you read something about being on mission for Jesus, you have Kuiper to thank because he really was influential in that time in the world to really kind of set the American church on a trajectory towards missional engagement. Another pair of guys are Reinhold and Richard Niebuhr. You ever heard of the Niebuhr brothers? They're like the Doobie brothers, but more German. So uh, they're actually German-American. They were... They were born and raised here in America, but German roots. And uh, 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 Richard's the younger brother, and he wrote a book called Christ and Culture. I've referenced it before. Maybe you've heard about it. He just kind of analyzes the different ways that Christians engage with culture. Very famous book, very famous work. Well, not to be outdone, Reinhold, the older brother, wrote a book called uh, uh, Moral Man and Immoral Society. He actually, Reinhold Niebuhr actually got quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He got the presidential, um, uh, what is it called? Some presidential medal from uh, Lyndon Johnson. He was quoted by Barack Obama and John McCain. Typical older brother behavior to just show up and take all the awards and credit for himself, okay? I think that Richard's book is actually better. Both were professors at like Yale and Union Seminary. But because of this kind of German uh, uh, background, well, in German Lutheranism, they had this idea of you just kind of, you just kind of hang. It's called faithful presence. We're not going to engage and take over the culture. We're just going to kind of stay here. We're going to be present and we're going to engage in certain ways, but we're going to more or less just try to be here and be consistently present. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I listened to a podcast about Dietrich Bonhoeffer this last week and what a fascinating figure. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, also from Germany, he, he started out his kind of theological writing career as a just kind of hang out, just kind of chill. And then he came to America and he stayed in America for about two years, but not just any America. Do you know where Dietrich Bonhoeffer hung out for two years? Harlem. 
And he went to an all African-American Baptist church for two years as a German native. When he went back, to, it affected him profoundly because he says, actually, these guys are talking about like liberation and freedom and progress. And, you know, this is kind of the era of, you know, uh, pre-integrated uh, schools and all that kind of stuff. So he goes back to Germany. He's like, nope, Hitler's bad. We got to do something. Do you know what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did? He got involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, he wasn't like directly involved, but he was like kind of rallying people and they were going to have a coup to throw, overthrow the whole government. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship and he ended up getting captured. You can see his years weren't very long because he got captured and hanged in a Nazi concentration camp for trying to overthrow the government. That sounds like engaged to me, I guess. I don't know. One more, a guy named Rod Dreher, who's actually current, born in 1967, but he wrote a book a few years ago called The Benedict Option. And this book generated a lot of controversy. It sold a lot of books, it, a lot of reviews, a lot of controversy, because in the book, he says, we actually need to be more like the Benedictine monks who retreated from culture in order to spend more time with the Lord, to pray, to fast, to read our Bibles, we need to pull back from the culture and not stop trying to be so Kyperian and transforming the world. Let's just pull back and, and focus on ourselves and focus on the church. A lot of controversy. I could keep going on. I mean, I touched on books from James K.A. Smith. He has a book called uh, Desiring the Kingdom. David Van Drunen, which I read a few years ago, uh, uh, Living in God's Two Kingdoms. James Davison Hunter, a book called To Change the World. That one also that came out about eight years ago. Tons of controversy and sales. Actually, a book by Matthew Kamink, who is a relation of our very own Dale Kamink. He wrote a book called Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration in an Age of Fear. I cannot recommend this book to you highly enough about about how the, like, you know, the Muslim world is pouring into the West and we live in this age of fear. And he draws from Kuiper, a good Dutch reform guy. And just it, it, like, he's, where is he going? He's like speaking all over the world. Are you texting him that I'm using his name right now? Okay, all right. I got permission. He, I, I'm Facebook friends with him too, Dale, okay? So that book is incredible. But all of these authors, all of these writers, all of these scholars, all of these thinkers are trying to figure out how do we live in the world? How do we interact? How do we engage? Do I press forward? Do I pull back? Do I just hang out? What do I do? Anybody ever felt that frustration? Any Christians in the room like, yeah, I'm living in the world and some days the world is maddening. Anybody? Some days it's frustrating. What do I do? And we're frustrated by different things and we're frustrated by different aspects of the world. And what do I do? And so here's my big idea for today. I got a lot of ground to cover, but I want to pause on this for a moment because I really think that as Christians, interacting with the world is going to require careful thought. It's going to require intentional action. It's going to require resilience or toughness and Christ-like love. All of those things held in tension some of us are better at one or two of these than, than the others. But if we are to be for the world, what Christ wants us to be in the world, we need to think carefully and we need to act decisively. We've got to toughen up. We've got to have our hearts just filled with Jesus' love. Speaking of Jesus' love, let me answer a question. Let me answer a few questions here. First one is this. Does God love the whole world? 
Does God love the whole world? And, and this question comes up maybe for a couple of reasons. First of all, you heard in our scripture reading that there is some sort of antagonistic relationship between God and the world, right? They hate the father, they hate the son, the world hates you because they hate the father and the son. So we could maybe think that, well, maybe God just hates them all back. Maybe God's just sick of the world and we're like back to the days of Noah when he's saying, let's just wipe them out. We'll start all over again. I would say to you that the answer to does God love the whole world should be from the lips of professing believers, a resounding yes. Psalm 145 verse nine says, the Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all that he has made. I'm not a language scholar, but everyone and all are important words that there is a love that God has for the entirety of his creation. He loves the planet. He loves the mountains, the seas that he filled with all of the creatures to, to, to swim and to frolic in them, that God loves people. He loves the good people. He loves the bad people. In fact, he only loves bad people because that's the only type of people that there are. He loves all that he has made. And I mention this to you because myself and our church, you know, kind of a reformed leaning church. If you don't know what that is, you're safe. God bless you. But for those of you who do, you know, kind of Calvinistic reformed talks about, you know, God's predestination and election. And we believe and unabashedly preach in a big God, a sovereign God. But sometimes Calvinists show up and ruin everything, which is sometimes true, unfortunately too often, but sometimes Calvinists show up and they say things like, well, God doesn't love the whole world because when, when in John three sixteen it says for God so love the world, that means only the elect. I would like to quote to you John Calvin on John three sixteen. Let's just read what he said. He said, when we read John three sixteen, we can see two things. First, that faith in Christ brings life to all. And second, that Christ brought life because the father loves the human world race and wishes that they should not perish. For any of you who like me are kind of Calvinistic or whatever, let's not be more Calvinistic than John Calvin, okay? God loves the whole world. With that said, God's love for the world is a brokenhearted type of love. Because like it says in John chapter three, that the world has responded large in, in large part to the love of God by still just loving their darkness and their works of evil. So you can imagine, for those of you who are parents, you love your children. Do you love them on their good days? Yes. Do you love them on their bad days when they're making bad decisions? And do, you still love them, right? But is there a brokenheartedness to that love? Like, I wish they weren't doing that thing. I wish I can see for them what would be better for them. And I, I want them to change. I think that God, when he reveals himself as a father, I think his love is something like that. I love the whole world. I'm pretty brokenhearted over the devastation. You ever been brokenhearted over the world? Think about God's perfect love, his perfect heart, his father's heart, his creator's heart. And yes, it is true that God has a special type of love for those who belong to him. There is a special love for those who are redeemed. God loves the whole world. God loves all that he has made. But for those that belong to him, Jesus says in John 17, that we are loved with the very same love that God the Father loves Jesus with. Or we could read other parts where Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends because I'm letting you in on the behind the scenes information about what's going on. So are you loved by God? Yes, absolutely. For those of you who are saved, are you treasured by God? Yeah, you'd better believe it.
Does God love the entire world? Yes, and he really, really loves those who belong to him, even if there are tears in his love. Okay, well, if, if that's the case, if God loves the whole world, why do followers of Jesus then find themselves at odds with the world? Why is it that, that if, if, we, if we really love the world the way God loves the world, why do we sometimes find ourselves in a fight with the world? You guys know what I'm talking about? I think there's, this, there's something that has crept into the Western American church that um, I don't have many pet peeves, but this is one of them. That's a lie. I have a ton of pet peeves, but this is one for sure. And it goes something like this. If we Christians could just be nice enough and kind enough and accepting enough and, you know, gentle enough, gracious enough, then everybody in our world and everybody in our culture would like us and we wouldn't have the bad reputation that we sometimes have. To be fair, sometimes Christians are idiots, okay? And there are bad reputations that we have deserved and we have earned. But I cannot square with the teaching of Jesus, this idea that if we were just nicer and kinder and gentler, that everyone in America would love us because there was nobody nicer, kinder, gentler, more loving, more accepting, more gracious than Jesus Christ himself, and they murdered him. Gospel of John tells us two specific reasons why we as Christians are at odds with the world. First of all, it's because when we become Christians, we're, we're, we're no longer born of this world. We're no longer born of this world. When, when you look at your life and you, you recognize that you're sinful and you need a savior and you look at Jesus crucified and you look at him resurrected from the dead and you said, I need that. I need forgiveness. I need hope. Well, you are no longer just an average citizen of the world. Jesus says that you are now born from above. In John chapter one, right in the like prologue of this whole book, it says to all who received him, who believed him in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were not born of the will of the flesh or the will of men, but were born from God. Did you know that friends? When you become a Christian, you are not signing up for some like list that you follow. You're not signing up for like a, like a scavenger hunt of tasks to accomplish. You have literally been raised from death to life in your spiritual being. And one day when Christ returns, you'll be raised from death to life physically. That's different. That's different than saying, oh, I subscribe to this philosophy or I, I follow this blog, right? Listen to this podcast. It's like, no, I've been turned inside out. I was dead, now I'm alive. It's a very, it's a very big difference, I would submit to you. It's called regeneration. Friends, if you're here today and you're dabbling in this Jesus stuff, I highly, highly recommend regeneration to you. It's amazing. Give your life to Jesus. Jesus says you'll be, you'll be born not of this world, and so if we have a different parentage, we have a different source of our life than the world, then well, no wonder we're going to find ourselves at odds with the world. And because of that different birth, we live according to a different set of values. Again, Jesus talks about, you know, my kingdom is, is not of this world. In, in John chapter 17, he says the world has gonna, is going to hate us because we're not of the world, just like Jesus. We live according to a different set of values. I was talking with a member of the church recently, who is involved in, in some local politics in their area. And they were telling me the story that they worked on something for about three years, trying to bring a lot of different politicians together to work on a project that was going to save millions of taxpayer dollars. 
It was going to, you know, reduce government waste, make things more efficient. It was just going to be a better thing for everybody. And they had, I don't remember what it was, 10 or 12 different people had all agreed, yes, when voting day comes, I'm going to vote yes. They said it. I'm going to vote yes. Several years of work went into this. Voting day comes and they start going around the circle. Vote no, vote no, vote no, vote no. And the member's like, I'm like, like pulling my hair out. Because what happened? We'll come to find out later that day and week that the primary key contributors to each of those politicians said, if you vote yes, we're going to take away our support and we won't fund your reelection. So all the politicians, surprise, changed their votes for money. Now you and I, we look at that and as Americans, we could say, yeah, it sounds like politics. Cynical, jaded, like that's just the way the world goes, right? Like that's the way of the world. But as followers of Jesus, we think, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say something about let your yes be yes and your no be no? Didn't Jesus say something you can't serve both God and money? Didn't Jesus, you know, talk about your, your character and what's, what's unseen versus what is seen, right? As followers of Jesus, we have new hearts, we have a new mind, we have a new spirit, and we live according to different values. So you can be as nice as Jesus Christ himself, and sometimes you're going to find yourself at odds with the world. It's just a reality of being a follower of Jesus. So if we're at odds with the world, then should a Christian love the world? Should a Christian love the world? Should I, should I, should I care? Should I love? If they hate, if they hate, if they hate God and they're going to hate me and we've got this antagonistic relationship, should I love the world? I think sometimes we, we think there's maybe a paradox or even a conflict between John 3.16 and 1 John 2.16. John 3.16. Say it with me if you know. We don't even need to put it up on the screen. You know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? But, 1 John 2.15, which we read during our time of singing, which written by the same author, best I can tell, Gospel of John, says, do not love the world or the things in the world. For these things in the world, these, if, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. These things, the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but that's from the world. And so you look at it you're like, well, wait a minute. If God loves the world, I'm supposed to be like God. Am I supposed to love the world or am I not supposed to love the world? The answer, of course, Sound City Bible Church is, yes, absolutely. We're to love the world the way that God has loved the world. Through identifying with us in our weakness. Entering into our brokenness, self-sacrificial love. But we're not to love the world in what we can get from it how it can benefit us, how it can make us feel good about ourselves. You guys know about this thing called um, uh, coolness, right? I'm not like some major world traveler or whatever, but I've been a few different places and, and coolness is just not as important really anywhere else in the world as it is in America. And I think we love the approval of man. Sometimes we love it more than God. Ideas start floating up from the world, you know, answers to problems, saying, oh, I love that, I love that, I love that. And, and meanwhile, God is saying, no, 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 don't love the world like that. Love the world in the way I love the world, which is sacrificial love and service and, and giving. So should we love the world? Absolutely. Are there things about the world we should not love? You better believe it. So I'll leave this with one question then left to answer, which is a big one. Okay, How? How do I do this? Yes, God loves the world. Yes, I'm supposed to love the world. Yeah, sometimes the world and I, we're not going to get along. So now what do I do? Help me. How do we go? I got nine minutes, right? And then you're going to leave here and you go out into the world. Let's, let's solve it. 
150 years, thousands upon thousands of pages of Christian writing and thought, let's, we're going to solve this here in a few minutes, right? Let me offer you some suggestions. First of all, a couple of non-options. Here's some things that are not options to us as Christians. <laughs> the first one is just no engagement. Jesus said, I'm sending you into the world. Now, some of you, you need to hear me on this. Some of you, you're more, uh, you are more naturally conservative and you're going to have more of a tendency to want to kind of pull back. And I'm not saying that that's wrong in and of itself, but if that is your natural tendency, then you need to be careful to not go into a place of non-engagement. Jesus said, I'm sending you into the world. Sometimes this shows up. It's the like, well, I go to church and we homeschool our kids. We only take them to a Christian co-op and we only listen to Christian music and we only listen to or watch Christian TV and we only shop at a Christian grocery store and we only eat Chick-fil-A and we only, you know, drive Christian cars. And we like, like it's, you can't do that. You cannot actually live and engage with the world the way that Jesus says, if your posture is one of non-engagement. So that's not an option for Christians. Amen? I don't know that we have maybe too many folks like that, but if that's your natural tendency, just watch and be careful. Number two, what's another option that's not on the table for Christians? Just be like the world. Because the pressure is, is unbelievable. 24 hours a day, morning, noon, and night, we have the pressures of the world around us. But Jesus said, you're salt and light. You know, a, a city on a hill, all that, all that kind of stuff. You know, shine like stars among a, a crooked and depraved generation. We cannot just become like the world. That's one of the greatest tragedies uh, in the Western American church. Let's just do everything like the world because then they're going to like us. How are we going to offer any hope if we just become like the world? Number three, forcible change. It's not an option for Christians. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdoms of the world, uh, you know, what's the bumper sticker? Jerry told me about it after the night. The bumper sticker, you know, peace through superior firepower. You know, that's been around since the dawn of time. You know, the Pax Romana, you ever heard of that? The Pax Romana, the peace of the Romans. Yeah, because if you cause any trouble, they crucified you, Right? That's the way of the world. That is not the way of Christ. We don't come in with a sledgehammer or a machete or whatever weapon of choice you want. I remember this story of like in the gospels when, when Jesus and his disciples went to a certain town and the town rejected them and didn't listen to the message. And the disciples were like, well, Jesus, do you want us just to call down fire from heaven to incinerate this town? And it's like, A, chalk went up for faith. I mean, good job on that. Like, cool. Uh, but Jesus is like, absolutely not. That's not how we're going to go about this. So we as Christians, as much as maybe there's a day where it's like, I just want to go in and just take over everything and just force change. Some of you are more naturally wired that way. You're more naturally aggressive or more naturally willing to engage. Watch out. They can go awry. Let's talk about some healthy engagement. Okay. I'm going to give you seven things. I'm going to do them quickly. Number one, practice robust spirituality. You know the part about the Benedictine monks withdrawing into the desert? There's some real good to that. How are you going to give to the world that which you do not already possess or have? Jesus said in John 15, you must abide in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. One of the best things that you can do to engage with the world is pray. Is read your Bible to withdraw, spend time alone with God. You know, uh, you ever been on an airplane and they say one of those things, you know, if, uh, if the cabin loses pressure, oxygen masks will deploy. What's the first thing they tell you to do? 
put on your own dang mask because you cannot help your kids or any people around you if you are yourself passed out from oxygen deprivation. You cannot help anyone around you if you are not yourself going before God saying, I love you, you love me. Help me just to walk with you. Help me to know you. Practice robust spirituality. Number two, be for the world. And what I mean is, on those days when you're most frustrated by the world, do we get a show of hands? Have anybody ever been frustrated by the world? Okay, news. You ever read the news? Have you ever read the news? Okay, <sighs> don't because it's awful and you won't be for the world. But if you do, you get frustrated. What I'm saying is, yeah, we're going to be hated. Yeah, there's things to be brokenhearted. But is your heart for the world? That you want to see people meet Jesus. You want to see oppressive systems broken down. That you want to see humans who are created in the image and likeness of God flourish. That you want to see the world more and more reflect the goodness of God's original creation. Are you for the world or do you adopt a sinful attitude that says, just let it all burn? Number three. Sometimes engage, sometimes pull back, but always be faithfully present. Sounds like I'm trying to have it always, aren't I? Yes. This is hard because there is not a script or a playbook. There are no apps where you can just get notifications. Ding, time to engage. Like that's just not how it works. We work in relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, who will prompt us and who will lead us. The Bible says things like he'll give us the words to say when the time is right. I think the converse is true. Sometimes he'll shut us up when we need to shut up. I have a pastor buddy of mine who a few years ago made a decision. Just, we're just cutting out any TV. No Netflix, no Amazon, no TV, no screens whatsoever. I'm not anti-TV. I think there's some good that can come from it. But for their family, said this is just, it's too much of the world's influence in our family. And we just want to read and we want to commit ourselves. I was looking on his blog. It's, it's, it's March, what is it, March 3rd. He's already read 40 books this year. I know. I was like, well, now I feel guilty and I'm against him. So I'm going to see him in April and I'm going to tell him, you made me feel guilty. So... But the point is, you need to exercise wisdom. When do I need to press in? When do I need to engage? When do I need to speak up? When do I need to, man, you see some problem, something in the world, like now is the time to act. When do you see some things like, man, I, I'm loving the world too much. I need, to, I need to distance myself a little bit. But always be faithful and present. Your neighbor, your coworker, maybe they're not going through a season of real pain or heartache right now. But if we know anything about the world, well, someday they will. For my friends, for my non-Christian neighbors, I want them to have my phone number. And I want them to know that I've been really kind and loving to them over the years. And maybe not preachy, but just, just faithfully there. Because when the proverbial, you know, the, the dam breaks and the, the pressures of the world and the pains of this life come breaking in, I want them to call me. And I want to be the one on their short list of people that they could reach out to. Number four, develop resilience. I'll just keep this one short. Just toughen up, for goodness sake. There's nothing worse than a whiny Christian. Oh, persecution. Look, if real persecution comes, let's let's be like Paul and Silas. Let's just sing. It'll It'll be a party. It's fine. 
We don't have to clap if our hands are chained. It's fine. You can clap your feet. Do whatever. It's like, like right? I don't know where I first heard it, but somebody, somebody once said, you know, in, in, the, in, in other parts of the world, you know, Christians have to fear the raised fist. Here we have to fear the raised eyebrow. Let's not be whiny Christians. Also, please do not whine or cry about persecution if you yourself are just a jerk, okay? Uh, like, don't be a jerk. And then when people are like, don't like you, oh, persecution. I'm like, no, repent of being a jerk, okay? Jerkiness is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> Toughen up a little bit. The world hates you. Ah, Jesus said, you're not greater than your master. They hated me too, so that's what you're signing up for. Number five, remember how Jesus has treated us. This is important. When you receive the ire and the hatred of the world, how did Jesus treat us when we were hateful towards him? What kind of love has the father lavished upon us? God, would you help me not to treat the world the way I want to treat the world? Would you help me to treat the world the way that you have treated me, the way that you have loved me, the way that you have forgiven me? Keep that one close, friends. Number six, eagerly await Christ's return. How many of you are encouraged to know that the way the world is today is not the way that the world will be forever? And one day, our Christ, our King, will return and the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdom of our Lord and he will rule and reign forever and ever. No more oppression, no more brokenness, no more sin, no more darkness. What a glorious day that will be, amen? And so in the meantime, rather than reading 10 more blogs about how much of idiots everybody is, why don't you just start praying, come soon, Lord Jesus? Just a suggestion. I'm throwing that out there, okay? Last one. Remember that God is sovereign. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? John 10, Jesus says, my father's greater than everything. Oh, who's in charge? Who's going to lead us? You know, we got, you guys, we got, <laughs> we have another election cycle coming up. And I don't know if I have the spiritual maturity to make it. God's sovereign. It's not that I don't care who's president or who's on the Supreme Court or who's in Congress, but at the end of the day, what is a man's life but a mist or a vapor? God is from eternity and to eternity. He is sovereign over all. And though things might look on days where things are out of control, we have an assurance that our God is not out of control and he will bring all things to their fitting and rightful end in his perfect timing and in his perfect will. Amen? It's an old hymn. This is my father's world. It says, Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. To that I say yes and amen. God, I ask and I pray that you would help us now as we come before you to sing and as we come before you to celebrate the Lord's table, that you would strengthen us and you would encourage us. God, even that you would nourish us spiritually as we partake in this meal and as we come before you to sing. God, we're going to leave this place. We're going to leave this gathering. We're going to go out into the world and we want to be for the world as you are for the world. And we want to love the world the way that you love the world and not love the world in 
ways that our sinful hearts are prone to love the world. We can't do any of this on our own. We really need your help, Lord Jesus. So would you meet with us and would you strengthen us now? In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. I'm going to hand it over to my brother Jamin to lead us in communion. We'll invite our younger students class to join us before we sing. So take it away, brother. Thanks, Pastor Aaron. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. When you walked in, you should have received the elements for the Lord's Supper. Um, pray before partaking in the Lord's Supper. Think of a time when you were being called to engage with the world and you didn't. Or, alternatively, think of a time when God was calling you not to engage and to step back, but you did not step back. Both of those are sin. Both of those are examples of sin against the, our Heavenly Father. But I have good news that Jesus died on the cross for that sin. And that's exciting. And we get to celebrate that in taking the Lord's Supper. So as our scripture said, examine yourself and think about those things I just described and pray and take the Lord's Supper right now. And after, stand and rejoice with us and, and praise him.